Turn your Bibles, if you have them, over to the 14th chapter of Romans. In our previous study, I should say the previous one in Romans, we was in the latter part of the 13th. And remember our entire context here is one where Paul throughout the book has led us to an understanding of the grace of God and the mercy of God that has made it possible for us to be saved by God's grace and through our trust, even though we really don't deserve it and don't earn it. And so that's the great good news that Paul has developed. Then we reach the point where in view of that, in the 12th chapter, in view of this, this understanding that I've given you of uh, God's providential care, God causing all things to work together for the good of those that love him, God giving his son as a sacrifice for your sins, uh, in view of all of this, then your reasonable response should be presenting yourself a living sacrifice to God. That ought to be your real worship to God, and it's a reasonable response is to present yourself a living sacrifice to God by the renewing of your mind. And then he gets into the actions that would follow. And we've been talking about uh, some things that are involved in our presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice before God. And each time we wind up realizing that sacrifice involves the giving of yourself in some way for somebody else or for God. In other words, if, if whatever you're doing does not involve your saying no to yourself and, and sacrificing exactly what you would want to do, then there's no sacrifice involved. And, and there's the recognition by Paul that there is no way that we can accomplish in our own lives and in this world what God would have us do without sacrificing ourselves in the same way that God could not accomplish our salvation without the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Now as we continue into another area, we've dealt with everything from loving one another to the, our relationship to the government and to our relationship within the church. And now we hit in another area, but, but still even in this area, this is a very important area that we deal with in this study. It's one that we're going to see that in order to carry on and for there to be harmony and for there to be unity within the body, that there has to be, again, a, a willingness to, to sacrifice something uh, of ourself because of others. Beginning with the first verse of chapter 14. Accept him who is, whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. But another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats it to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. 
He who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue confess to God. So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as your fellow Christ Jesus, as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it's written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles now saying hymns to your name. Again it says rejoice O Gentiles with his people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles and sing praises to him all you people and Isaiah says the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, completed knowledge, and confident to instruct one another. I've written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you and them again, because of the grace God gave to me, 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's deal with the context first. Notice this business of, again, sacrifice of self. Uh, you cannot always do what you want to. Uh, there may be an occasion when something is right and, and you could do it. But if in some way you see that you're doing this is, is going to cause somebody else to stumble, offend them in some way, uh, then if you love the other person, if you love the Lord, then rethink your position. Uh, there's, there's going to be times when, when, when you observe and, and you see that there, there is a person who is doing things that you can't do in good conscience. But as you observe this individual, it will also be obvious to you that some of these people love God just as much as you do. And they have faith in God and they believe in Jesus. And even though they believe in God and they believe in Jesus and they have faith in Him and they're trying to be godly, that there are those things that they seem to be able to do that you can't do. Well, he said, if you're in that situation, don't judge that person. If you see he loves God, he loves the Lord, he has his faith in God, and he can do this, not because he wants to disobey God, but because he has an understanding that's different than yours and he can do it, you may think he's wrong. You may not be able to do it. Don't pass judgment on him. He as an individual, as long as you as an individual, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to be judged by God. God will determine whether we stand or fall in these matters. So we have a situation where in principle, that's what I'm dealing with right now, we can see that there will be times within the Christian community where people who believe in God, believe in Jesus, and are sincere, will have times when somebody might be able to do something that you're not, and there's a possibility of an attitude problem towards this individual, a feeling problem a, that would cause you to condemn this person, and, and Paul says, wait a minute. And then there's the time when uh, this under, other individual seems to think that he cannot do something that you believe is obvious. This is silly that you would think that uh, being a Christian uh, is of such a nature that you couldn't do that. Even though that he says, you, you believe that's so obvious. And you look at him and you say, well, why does he feel that way? Well, he feels that way because he believes in God. Otherwise, he wouldn't even care. So if he feels that way because he believes in God, even though you believe he's wrong, don't mock him. Be little judgmental, put him down. Don't try to make him feel so silly that, that he will defy his own conscience and do something that he really doesn't feel comfortable with. Note the first verse. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, what that is saying, and this rendering is so clear in comparison with the King James. Within the Christian community, there are disputable matters. 
There have been. There always will be. Within the law of Moses, there were disputable matters. All right, now, on this disputable matter, in context, the specific matters that they were disputing, first of all, had to do with whether you could eat certain type of meats. Specifically, if we went farther with that, I think we'd see that, uh, that there was nobody that actually believed it was wrong to eat meat per se, but there was the Gentile who had been converted from his idolatrous pagan background and a lot of this meat that was sold in the marketplace had been offered to the idol. And so he, because of a past in his feelings, could not eat that in good conscience and so before he would eat any meat at all, if that's all he had access to, he'd eat vegetables. Remember Daniel when he went into Babylon. And he refused to eat anything but vegetables because he could not eat meat in pre prepared in keeping with the law of Moses. But then on the other hand, there was a Jew who ate some meats, but then there were other meats that were unclean to the Jews. And some of the meats that the, Gentile, that, the, that the Gentiles ate were unclean to the Jew. So you can see that when you have, and you can see Paul referring himself to the apostles of the Gentile, and then he quotes all these passages about the Gentiles, that the Messiah has died for the Gentiles too, and they're to hope in him. But then he also said he's the God of the Jews. Well, you can see right away how that these Jew and Gentile, with their different backgrounds, here's a Jew that eats meat if it's prepared in a certain way and if it's a certain type. Here is a Gentile who has eaten in his life all kinds of meat that the Jew would not eat. He has also eaten meats that were sacrificed and thought of it as something holy. And now he's learned that there's nothing holy about it. It has been offered to that God and, and it's wrong and he don't want any part of that. And so we have a disputable matter. Now, the fact that this was a disputable matter, does that mean that there was not a truth on that particular point? There was a truth, wasn't it? Paul, as an apostle, says, I am fully convinced that you can eat meat, that there's nothing wrong. You can eat that meat that's been offered as a sacrifice to an idol, as long as you know in your own heart that that idol is not God, and you in your own heart have no intention of worshiping him, and you in that heart do not think of this as sanctified meat, you can eat that meat. So there was a truth there. You did not have to limit yourself to vegetables. By the way, there's still some argument on this even today. Uh, uh, for example, there are those in the Christian community that believe that, that the meats that were unclean under the law of Moses are still unclean and, and it would be wrong to eat it, uh, such as, for example, pork or something of that nature. There are others that say, no, in the New Testament we learn such and such about meat, and in reality... That doesn't apply to us in the same way. In fact, what we in essence do, uh, that we look at that and we say, I can understand the meat criteria over under the law of Moses and the preparation. I can see, for example, that, uh, that some of the things they didn't eat, like we'll say uh, oysters or shrimp and things of that nature, they deteriorate extremely quickly. 
But today, we know that, and we understand about bacteria, and we also we know how to make ice, and so we actually have the ability to, to take oysters and shrimp and put them on ice immediately, and people can, and if they're handled in the right way, people can eat them. So then we say, since we know and understand this, that they didn't have, would that same thing be true to us as it was true in that environment, in that day? And also, some of those things that they did not eat had to do with the fact that the way the, the pagans idolized them and used them in various ways. And there were other things about it that, was, that did have a health meaning. Uh, but again, we have the ability to look and to derive the health meaning out of that. So you actually still have a, uh, an argument within the Christian community. Those things that meats are unclean, are they still unclean? And then how do we act in this matter? That was the argument. But here's the point on that first argument. Because that something is disputable and people are arguing about it does not mean that there's not a truth there. But it is saying from the context that because of our past backgrounds, the environment that we were brought up in, our conscience is developed in many ways from our past. Our conscience is no better than its education. There may be something that I cannot do in good conscience today that I can do in good conscience next year. There may be something that I am doing in good conscience today that I will refuse to do two years from now because of information that I learned. My conscience cannot perform any better than my information. But Paul says here, even though that's the case, what's he say? Respect the conscience. Look at this. The man who has doubts is condemned to be eased because his eating does not come from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. If you have doubt that something is right, then you can't do it in faith. And therefore it would be sinful for you and your conscience would condemn you. So there are disputable matters within the Christian community and we see him dealing with it here. But then notice in verse 5 of chapter 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Now, in this matter of whether or not to eat meat or just to eat vegetables, how are they going to have this spirit in unity? Was, it, was there something going to happen to cause them all to think exactly the same way on something or would the spirit of unity come from the fact that they would recognize that there was differences and they would, as long as they could see that each person believed in God, believed in the Lord, had his trust in God, and was acting the way he did because of his belief in God, that they would respect one another's conscience in the matter and one would not judge the other, one would not belittle the other, each would be willing to make a little bit of a sacrifice of themselves so that they could get along in a spirit of unity. Was that the way it was? Or was it a matter of we'll have unity by thinking exactly the same way on that matter? Notice the truth is there. It's a disputable matter. But, you know, sometimes I remember I used to preach that there were matters of faith and, and in matters of opinion. And within matters of opinion, 
like what color rug we going to get here how hot or how cold are we going to keep this building we can fuss a little bit and argue and differ and it hopefully won't break our fellowship you know that, and that was but in matters of faith there is no room for difference and fellowship but in his example here this disputable matter is a matter that has been addressed by the apostle and it is a matter where there is a discernible truth but, it, but one that is weak in faith has not come to the realization of that truth yet uh, the truth is Paul's saying that you can, eat, you can eat all meat that nothing that God created is unholy or bad or anything and if you know what you do and, and you know how to handle it Paul says you use your own judgment in those matters that was the truth you don't have to be a vegetarian to be a Christian but it was disputable because there were others that just simply had come from a background where that meat had been offered in, same, in a certain way and they had a hard time dealing with that, right? So it was a disputable matter. All right, what about the subject of days? Here's the setting again. Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles had certain days, just like we have a Gentile nation. We have set aside Thanksgiving uh, as a certain time to, that we uh, have dinner together with our family and we give thanks to God for his blessings and all. The 4th of July, we celebrate the, the independence of our country, the signing of the Declaration of Independence on, on July the 4th, and there's prayers and the giving of thanks to God and then other things that go on. There's other days. There's Memorial Day. There's Veterans Day. And most of these days when they're celebrated have a part of that day when there is prayer given to God. And, and the two are blended in. So there is prayer and thanksgiving given to God from within these particular days. And so we have that. Well, the Gentiles had days like this. And the Jews had a lot of different days under the law of Moses that were special to them for various reasons. Well, you can see when the Jew and Gentile come into the body of Christ how we're going to have a little bit of argument about what days we're going to keep, what days we're going to respect. So Paul deals with that. One man considers one day more holy, more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. In other words, that this person who may be doing this about a particular day because of his belief in God don't stand in condemning. On the other hand, he needs to recognize that if you don't feel anything about that particular day, that you're going to have to make a judgment there. Now again, was there a specific truth there? Well, on that one, it's, a, it's pretty hard to figure out. The only statement of truth uh, that I can see Paul making would be that each person had the right to consider it one way or the other from Paul's standpoint. Well, we still have this, in a way, within the Christian community concerning the Sabbath or the first day, don't we? Uh, there are those who believe in Jesus just as strong as we do, who have repented of their sins, put their trust in the Lord, have been immersed and believe very strongly, believe in living a godly life, but they go back and they say that 
the law says remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy and then they say the Sabbath day was the seventh day and therefore we should continue on then there are those like us and we look at that and we say we know that and we understand it and we're not trying to be unholy or ungodly when, when we don't keep the seventh day as, as, as a Sabbath but we can also see that after Christ raised from the dead on the first of the week the Christians began right away to assemble on the first of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper and remember the death, burial, and resurrection. And we can see that it, the indication is that the apostles kept the day of rest on the Sabbath, but then they also partook of the Lord's Supper on the first day, and we can study history and see that there was sort of a transition there so that Christians came to observe the first of the week some of them kept the first as a Sabbath. Some of them just to partake of the Lord's Supper. So there has been a debate through the centuries on this area. It's been a disputable matter. Is that to say there is not a specific truth there? I believe there is a specific truth. But within the Christian community, it has been a disputable matter all through the years. Well, how does Paul say to handle that? If I understand what he's saying, he's saying that if this fellow understands and his conscience demands it that he ought to keep the seventh day Sabbath, why is he keeping the seventh day Sabbath? Because he believes in God. God created the earth in six days. He rested on the Sabbath and therefore he sanctified and hallowed the Sabbath day. And so that, that's why he's keeping it as a day of rest and all. Well, those of us that are not keeping the Sabbath, what are we really saying? We're in essence saying that the church took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, and then we go a step further. We say, one day in seven is one day in seven. What is it, if you're keeping one day in seven, what does it really matter whether it's the seventh or the first? And we're, then we're saying it's only logical that Christians would prefer to keep their one day in seven on the first day because that's when Jesus was raised from the dead. So it's a disputable matter. Well, the way we've handled some of this is we've divided up into different camps. And by the way, there is an area here where there would have to be division in a certain realm, isn't there? I mean, obviously, if this fellow believes that this is about the Sabbath, then there's no way that he can ignore that and have that as just a working day and then be here this morning. On the other hand, if you don't feel the way he does on it, and, and you really believe that, that you want to partake of the Lord's Supper, and that you don't have two days a week, that one day in seven is all that, 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 you, can, that you can actually give, and you feel that that's what I, that which one am I going to do then? You say, well, the Lord's Supper is dominant in my thinking, and, and the early church did it on the first day, and so I'm going to set the, the Lord's Supper, or the first day, as, as an important day. So that's really what we've done. Well, How do we handle this? Let that person keep the Sabbath. Let him realize that you're not keeping the Sabbath because you disregard God's law or you don't love God. You simply understand that different than he does. Now, does that mean that there is not a discernible truth and when we get to heaven, we might find out that one or the other is right or maybe both were wrong or whatever? No. It just simply says that there, there is, it is a disputable matter among us. So, the question becomes, how do we handle it? Well, I believe what Paul is saying 
Let each make the decision in his own mind. The problem is going to come with the man on the Sabbath, not in his keeping the Sabbath, but where's the problem going to come? It's when he judges me and say, I'm going to hell because I do not see it the way he does. Then there's a problem. Or, if I'm going to belittle him and say, can't you realize that that was all nailed to the cross? These passages are as plain as day, etc. Then we've got problems. But if I can recognize that he has made his decision, right or wrong, based on his belief in God, and he believes in the same godly life that I do, and if he can recognize that I have made my decision based on what I believe that is taught in God's Word, then there's no room for neither one of us to judge the other or to belittle the other. And what we should do is, if there's a disputable matter, Paul is discussing it, isn't he? We need to discuss those matters. Why is it on disputable matters we don't discuss them more than we do? Think about it. Paul said there are disputable matters. Disputable matters are matters of faith. Where, where there's a plain statement. There's going to be times where, where one person is ahead of the other in his understanding. Why is it we don't? Why is it within Bible studies and services and all as you visit around and all, that people honestly try to avoid disputable matters? Because from that can come hard feelings, people getting mad. But then the question becomes, why the hard feelings? Why the getting mad? I believe it becomes because of a feeling that heaven and hell is hanging in the balance. And the feeling uh, many times on each side that you're going to have to see it my way or, or go to hell. I believe if we could learn to have the attitude that Paul is having here in the long run, we would have greater unity because we could discuss disputable matters in our Bible classes and in our lessons and all with the attitude that no, heaven and hell is not hanging in the balance. Heaven and hell hung in the balance the day you made the decision to repent of your sins or not repent and put your trust in Christ and depend on Him for your salvation. But now as a babe in Christ and you begin to mature and grow and develop, Heaven and hell isn't hanging in the balances every time you try to learn something or understand it or make a decision. You can simply study and follow your own conscience as you come to a better and better understanding of these matters. And so this is what Paul is saying. Can we discuss these matters? Sure, that's what he's doing. But do it from within the attitude that we, we equally love God. We, we equally love His Word. And just because a person differs with me does not mean that he disrespects God's word or he don't believe in God or he doesn't trust in the Lord. It may mean that one of the other of us simply has a bit more accurate understanding uh, for whatever reason, just as that was the case here. So the principle here is one that they were having a problem with and in context it was as simple as, as meets and days. But that same principle has been all through the centuries and it always will be. And, and, and the key point I want to make on this is this disputable matter was not on something that was just an opinion thing as to which way it went. There was a truth there. Paul stated the truth. 
And he stated the truth and even said the person that didn't understand that truth was what in his faith? Had a weak faith. He doesn't understand this yet. But with one with a weaker faith and one with a stronger faith and the person with a weaker faith not having as good understanding, he wanted them to come to a unity in spirit. And, and Paul, for his part, he says, when I'm with somebody that feels this way about me, that eating meat will cause him to stumble, I won't eat. In other words, that even though I may eat it out here when I'm with my fellow meat eaters who see no problem in this, when I'm eating with this fellow that cannot do that, Paul says... I'm not going to cause him to stumble. I'm not going to sit here and eat meat in front of him and chide him and, and try to get him to go contrary to his conscience. I'm not going to do that. But on the other hand, when I'm not eating with him, and I'm out here with my friends who understand like I do that it's okay to eat meat, I don't want him judging me either and, and, and telling me that that's sinful when, when he knows that I believe in God just as, just as strong as, as he does. So... Notice on either side, whether you would be the person that Paul has in the weak faith here or the one with the strong faith, isn't there a sacrifice of self involved if we're going to have harmony and unity? Each side is going to have to look and be considerate of the other. Each side is going to have to be respectful of the other's conscience. One is going to have to be willing not to pass judgment, and the other one is going to have to be willing not to look down on or to belittle in some way. And with that attitude, they can take this disputable matter and move on. You know that uh, I had several examples that I was going to look at and running out of time. But there are any number of areas uh, that we might talk about where we have, over the years, I, I think of the people over here, the, the, uh, not too far from us, that, that would believe in, in wearing all black. And then those of us that believe that, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with color. They believe that color, if worn on the body, is ostentatious. That it's, it's showy. It draws attention to your person. And therefore, uh, you shouldn't be there and have bright, bright colored whatever. You know, and we look at that and we say, we just can't understand that. And so, to separate in such a way that you're with somebody you feel more comfortable with, and they are fine. There's no problem there. But for me to stand up here and to be little or to put him down or to mock that and say that looks silly them with that garb and everything like that, if I understand what Paul is saying, that's wrong. If, if his conscience demands we're in all black, let him wear all black. On the other hand, when that person looks at our lives and he sees that we believe in God and we are moral people and we want to do what's right, don't pass judgment on us on this disputable matter of, of colors. Obviously, in our, in our perspective, we in perfectly good conscience before God have no problem with this kind of thing. Well, this is true in other areas. And it's true within the body itself. When it gets into the area of that same realm of the modesty of apparel, in my judgment, mini skirts, short shorts, the bathing suits and a public mixed thing are immodest. Uh, they're in my, I taught it in my family. Some of them may not teach it the way that I do. They may not practice it the way that I taught it. But I'm saying I believe that. And so it's, it's been a disputable matter within the church. But again, each person will have to look at that and make the decision in their own mind. And, and notice in this area or the other areas or any other area, 
In the final analysis, nobody fools God, do they? Because you've got your conscience. And so whatever that lady's wearing or whatever that man is wearing, they better have a good conscience about it. They better feel very comfortable that this is right before God. And if they do, even though they may be wrong, they'll stand acceptable to God. Uh, that's the important thing. Uh, a different background and things of that nature definitely influence us in, in, in various ways. Well, we can get into other areas. We, uh, disputable matter, your contribution. Uh, I, I can remember when I first became a Christian. One of the first things I learned from uh, within the churches of Christ is that, uh, you know, the, the law of Moses has been nailed across, therefore there's no more tithing. And we just, we hear this God has prospered us, and so whatever you can give out of the goodness of your heart, that is fine. I read the material, <clears throat> Old and New Testament. I read about Abraham, I read about Jacob, I read the law of Moses, I looked on. And I personally differ with that. Uh, one, of the, one of the first decisions that Barbara and I made when we got married is a minimum of 10% of, of all our money belonged to God. It's that simple. That don't mean that exactly 10% always went into the collection plate. A big chunk of it did, but the 10% of all our money belonged to God, that it had to be used for religious reasons, religious and spiritual reasons. And I looked at that as a guide, but that's a starting point. Well, most of the church is always different with me in that area. And there are very sincere people that differ with that that give beyond 10%. And then there are those that don't, don't come close to 10% and differ with it. Well, in the final analysis, to get this out in the open and discuss it is fine. But for anybody to pass judgment on the other is wrong. It's a disputable matter. Is there a truth there? <clears throat> I believe there is. But whatever it is, it is a disputable matter within the Christian community. In some churches, for example, they will not fellowship you. Uh, there are two, at least two churches I'm aware of in our county that you cannot enter into their fellowship unless you agree to give 10%. So they make it a matter of fellowship. I differ with them on making it a matter of fellowship. And I believe that Paul would, based on the statement here. So he says that within our fellowship, there will be disputable matters, not just on simple things like the color of the rug, but there's going to be disputable matters, not because there's not a straight truth there, but because we come from different backgrounds, different environments. We're at, we're at different levels in our development of faith. Some have a weaker or a stronger faith at any given point. And so there will always be, and he said there is a certain attitude that we should have when we handle these disputable matters. Let's conclude our study for this morning. You're in the audience as one that is not a Christian. It's our custom as we complete any of our studies to always offer an invitation. Uh, if you already, through your own study, know and believe and understand the good news of salvation in Jesus and desire to respond, you have the opportunity as together we stand and say.